Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. You're listening to a special Citizens United at 10 Symposium episode of the show. In recognition of the 10th anniversary of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, we're interviewing scholars about the research on the decision and the issues that it raises. We're also taking a look forward for things to watch for over the next 10 years. We'll return next week with our regular episodes. As usual, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app or let others know about the show too. Our first guest on the Business Scholarship Podcast, Citizens United at 10 Podcast Symposium, is Kent Greenfield, professor of law at Boston College. Kent, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. It's good to be here. Kent, could you give our listeners an overview of your work the last 10 years or in your career as it relates to maybe some of the issues raised by Citizens United, the issues raised by money and politics, particularly the role of corporations in money and politics? Yeah, absolutely. I, I often joke when I talk about Citizens United that it was, it might have been really horrible for our democracy, but it was great for my career. <laughs> I, 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 the reason I say that is because before Citizens United, I had like two parts of my scholarship and teaching and, and areas of interest. One had to do with corporate governance and the, the rights of employees and the rights of other stakeholders on the one side. On the other side, I had a deep interest in constitutional law and the nature of rights and, and obligations under our constitutional structure. And people would ask me, you know, that's sort of weird. Why are you doing corporate law and constitutional law? People don't do that anymore. And I would always make up something about, well, you know, they're both about the governance of large institutions and setting out rules ahead of the game, and et cetera. But then when Citizens United happened, the obligations and rights of corporations became the center stage in the constitutional law space. And very few constitutional law folks had um, the grounding in, in corporate law to talk about it, and very few corporate law people had very much grounding in constitutional law to talk about it. And I was one of the few people around the country who had done work in both areas. So in a way, I was positioned to become a voice in the discussions about the implications of it, what to do about it going forward, and the like. So in a way, I've spent a lot of the last 10 years talking about Citizens United, talking about using Citizens United as a way to open a conversation with people about the rights of corporations and their obligations. And it really culminated in the end of 2018 with the publication of, of a book that I've been writing on for several years called Corporations Are People Too and They Should Act Like It. And in that book, I make the argument that corporations should have some rights, not all rights as natural human beings, but some rights. And so I go through which rights they should have, which rights they should not have. And then I also am able to bring out the implications for corporate governance and to say that many of the things that people are worried about corporate power and democracy are really corporate law remedies instead of constitutional law remedies. So I think the subtitle of the book, you know, and they, corporations are people too, and they should act like it is my effort to say, look, corporations ought to have obligations to society and we should enforce those by way of corporate law. So Citizens United has probably been at the core of my attention, my scholarly attention over the last decade. So in 10 years past the 10-year anniversary today of Citizens United, what have been some of the developments from that case that have surprised you? And maybe what are some of the things that happened that haven't been as surprising for you? Yeah, I think the, when I was researching my book, the thing that was really surprising to me and was a mismatch between what the rhetoric about the case was and the facts that I found was that even after Citizens United, corporate spending 
in politics has mostly stayed flat. Uh, super PACs have exploded. Independent expenditures have exploded. But most of the money going into super PACs are from rich individuals and from unions. Uh, super PACs, the, the growth of super PACs was one of the implications of Citizens United, but not the corporate speech part of it. Another part of it, and then uh, there was a case in the D.C. Circuit called Speech Now, which took off the caps off of super PACs and allowed them to explode in implications. And I think that the, the growth of super PACs has been a real detriment to the way we run politics and the way we do democracy in this country. But surprisingly, it's not corporate money that's been inflating those coffers. So, for example, in 2012, the biggest corporate spender was Chevron. They spent about $2.5 million in the 2012 cycle. So in 2016, if you total together the top 50 contributions to super PACs from both public and private companies, the total comes to $52 million. That sounds like a lot of money, I know. But that's $30 million less than Sheldon Adelson and his wife gave in 2016. And the Koch brothers were talking in 2016 of spending almost a billion dollars in the 2016 election cycle. Meanwhile, unions have been, have been because Citizens United struck down the limits not only on corporations but on unions, unions have really been, have come into this space and have been making a lot of independent expenditures to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. Uh, whether it's the SEIU or the AFL-CIO or the Eventual Teachers Union, they are engaged in political speech and contributions to Democratic-leaning super PACs for the most part. So ironically, uh, the explosion of super PACs have come from individuals, unions, not corporations. So the fact that Citizens United is there, individuals could have spent before Citizens United, right? Because that's been the law since Buckley. But unions were not allowed to make independent expenditures in politics until Citizens United. So Ironically, Citizens United may have meant that the left-leaning candidates, Democratic candidates, have had more money in the last 10 years than they otherwise would have. So because corporations have not filled the space, unions have. And I was blown away when I discovered that information. So I still think that money in politics is a really major, if not central problem in American democracy. But it's not really corporate money, surprisingly. It's union money and rich people money. And I think it needs to be addressed and needs to be dealt with. But I think to focus on corporate money is really to ignore the real implications of Citizens United. So it's counterintuitive that corporate money hasn't been among the floodgate waters, so to speak. Any thoughts on why that might be? Why corporations haven't stepped up with this new flexibility they have to engage in independent expenditure? Yeah. So first of all, they have engaged in independent expenditures in a range of instances with regard to, you know, uh, referenda in California about genetically modified foods, for example, or uh, judgeships in West Virginia. I'm not, I don't want to dismiss or minimize the implications of corporate spending, but at least in, with regard to national elections, presidential cycles, where most of our attentions are drawn, they haven't been engaged. And I think mostly my sense of that is twofold. One is uh, I think corporations are risk averse in this space. They tend to give money in congressional races and low visibility races when they spend. But I think both presidential candidates in 2016 were polarizing and corporations were reluctant to be identified with one side or the other. Now, having said that, you know, corporate CEOs were not as reluctant. Once Trump got elected, a lot of rich people money and some corporate money flowed to his inauguration committee and, and the like. 
But I think in high visibility moments, corporations are risk averse. That may give us some indication of like what we should be doing going forward is to really continue the, the effort to raise attention about corporate spending, make sure that corporations who do engage in corporate spending are, uh, that information is made known, is disclosed. The efforts on the part of shareholder activists to require corporations to disclose, I think is a really good thing because I think corporations for the most part, are risk-averse in this space. And I guess that leads me to my second point. They are risk-averse because corporations almost have to be less polarized than the polity is. You know, in America these days, everybody's talking about how polarized we all are. Conservative, liberal, rural, city, blue states, red states, north-south, coast, middle of the country. But corporations have to sell all those places, right? And they can't be as isolating or as polarizing because they've got to think in the long term and they've got to think in the more pluralistically than political parties do. So, and I think in some way, and I think we've seen this is another implication that I think it's worth noting, you know, since Trump was elected in 2016, there have been plenty of instances in which corporations have been more progressive actors than one might have expected. And again, I'm, I don't want to be seen as an apologist for corporate America, but there are certainly situations over the last several years in which corporations have been positive actors, whether you know big corporations protesting the anti-trans law in North Carolina or the laws in Arkansas and elsewhere that would allow businesses to discriminate. Walmart spoke out against the so-called Religious Freedom Act in Arkansas that would give companies the right to discriminate against LGBTQ people. I think another instance in which I I often talk uh, with my students about is, you know, after the 2016 election, the Super Bowl ads were flooded with corporations engaging in, in marketing strategies that made it clear that they were wanting to align themselves with a more progressive, more pluralistic view of America. Coca-Cola spent you know, millions of dollars on this ad where America the Beautiful was sung in different languages. The visuals were people of all kinds, of all colors, of all ethnicities, uh, gay, straight, in this commercial at the Super Bowl. So, uh, in 2017, where we were all like worried about what was in store, and you know, right in hindsight, rightly so. So I think you know, there's a lot of takeaways from here, uh, but I do think that there are reasons to be worried about corporate power. I think there's reason to think that there have been instances over the last several years in which corporations have been progressive forces in areas in which were really important at the time. So we're 10 years down the road now. What should we be watching for over the next 10 years? And if we were to reconvene this conversation on January 21st, 3030, do you have any predictions for what we might have experienced over those 10 years in, in this space? Yeah, so I, I think that's a great question. It's, it's fun to think about. I hope more fun than worrisome. But I do think that we're at a decision point, crucial decision point in America. And it's hard to distance ourselves or just make this distinction away from the political realities of the day. I think if Trump is reelected, a lot of things go even worse. If Trump is not reelected, I think we have a chance to make some pretty fundamental shifts in American politics and policy and governance. And let me mention a few. I do think there's a way to move ahead 
on limitations on money and politics. I think it can either be done doctrinally by changing the courts and the Supreme Court. I think there are ways to move ahead with more pervasive notions of campaign finance. I've been generally skeptical of constitutional amendment efforts in this space. And I know a bunch of people who I respect a huge amount have spent a lot of time and effort on urging us ahead to the to, to constitutional amendments. The reason I've tended to be skeptical is I think they've been overbroad. Uh, the efforts have focused on constitutional rights. And as I explained in my book, I do think corporations deserve rights much of the time. The New York Times is a for-profit corporation and deserves rights. But I think a constitutional amendment that is focused on campaign finance and on reasonable limits on campaign spending, I think is something that I could get behind. The other thing, though, that I think that there's a real chance to to see major change in the next decade is on the corporate governance side. I think there are low-hanging fruit that policymakers and citizens can take advantage of and pick. For example, I think that there is a more energy and more interest in thinking about substantive changes to corporate governance that would have very positive implications. So, for example... Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, among others, have suggested that major corporations in America should be chartered, incorporated at the national level, not the state level. Most large corporations are chartered at the state level, mostly in Delaware. Delaware has zero interest in enforcing obligations to stakeholders that are not shareholders. So I think we could, I think there's real potential for movement to say, you know, corporations ought to be governed at the national level. They're really nationally important. Let's align ourselves as as a national government with every other advanced democratic economy in the world and have corporations chartered and regulated at the national level, not the state level. And secondly, let's think seriously about moving ahead on uh, making boards of directors and management more representative of all the stakeholders of the company. So it's called co-determination to put uh, employees and workers on boards of directors. It's prevalent in Europe. Leading example is Germany. German companies are co-determined. Uh, they have the senior board, half elected by the shareholders, half elected by employees. Uh, in fact, many economists think that co-determination in Germany has been a positive effect on the macro level. And there is a lot of interest, more interested in the talking about putting employees on boards of directors in America than I have seen in my career of 25, 30 years. And I think it's one of those things that makes a lot of sense. We should make corporations, uh, we should encourage, incentivize, require corporations to act not just in the interest of shareholders of Wall Street, but in the interest of the employees who spend their time, effort, expertise, and creating, uh, helping the corporations create the wealth that they are intended to do. I mean, I completely agree that corporations ought to make money. That's their purpose. Where I differ from most of my corporate law colleagues is that where that wealth goes uh, should not just go to the shareholders. There should be a legal obligation to share that corporate surplus with all the corporate stakeholders. And the best way to ensure that is to make sure that the governance of the corporation mimics and mirrors those who contribute to the corporate surplus. So let's put employees on boards of directors. And I think that's, I would not be surprised at all, uh, Andrew, that in 10 years, we will see a national shift that major national corporations will have uh, employees on boards of directors as a matter of regulation and right. And I think that would be a very positive thing. That would be a significant shift from where we are today. So we'll have to keep an eye out to see if that prediction comes to fruition. 
Our first guest on the Business Scholarship Podcast podcast symposium on Citizens United at 10 has been Kent Greenfield, professor of law at Boston College. Kent, thank you for joining. It's been a pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.